Open your Bibles up to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. The first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. He spells out the universal condition of humanity. Speaks to us about that awful reality that everyone knows the one true God, but they suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. The idea of suppressing that knowledge is it's an active word. It's, it's kind of like trying to hold a beach ball under the pool water. You have to really work at it. It keeps wanting to come to the surface and Paul says that's true of every single person because they are made in the image of God. That the knowledge of God lies within them. God has made it known to them. And yet they struggle to try to push that knowledge away. They substitute, Paul says, a pantheon of false deities gods and goddesses that they've crafted from their own vain imaginings, really seeking to manipulate the universe for their own benefit. Man is inescapably religious, and he's inescapably religious because of the virtue of his creation in the image of God. There is a, there is a God-shaped hole in a in a person's soul, and there's just no way that it can be satisfied. It makes man very, very religious. Paul says, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about them is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures." A really dismal account of the human race. Paul's speaking primarily here in chapter 1 about the pagans. Those who do not know the true God. Chapter 2, he will turn to the Jew and he will bring him before the bar of divine justice as well and convict him of his own unbelief. But here in chapter 1, it's about the pagans. The fact that they have denied the one true God and substituted their idols, foolish in their own thinking, darkened in their speculations. 
Because people are incurably religious, prayer is not something that is uniquely Christian. People pray. All kinds of people pray. In fact, the the vast majority of the people on this planet pray. There's only a handful of, of really ardent atheists who can probably say that they don't pray, although they have their own forms of communication with their own foolish philosophies. But the majority of people pray, the vast majority. And so prayer in and of itself is is not a particularly unique Christian activity. But what really stands out about prayer is how a person approaches it. That's really what separates Christian prayer from pagan prayer. The pagans that Paul talks about here in in Romans chapter 1 are praying people. In fact, they might put us to shame in terms of the quantity of their prayer. The issue is the approach. Our prayer approach reveals what we believe about God. How we pray reveals what we really believe about God. That's why I've entitled the message this morning, Avoiding a pagan approach to prayer. Avoiding a pagan approach to prayer. How we conceive of God directly influences how we approach prayer. To pray wrongly is to believe wrongly about God. And to believe wrongly about God is a sin. It is sin. What we believe about God, beloved, has to be shaped and informed by the Word of God. Because He has first revealed Himself to us. We can't just come any old way we want. We can't just sort of make it up as we go. It is the Word of God, not human invention. That has to shape our prayers. So slide over to the left to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is going to take up this topic. Matthew 6, we'll be looking at verses 7 and 8 together this morning. Jesus is really clear here in these verses. Very clear, he specifically instructs his disciples to avoid a pagan approach to prayer. He says, do not be like them. Do you see it at the beginning of verse 8? Do not be like them. That means that a pagan approach to prayer can be identified, it, it can be specified. So that Jesus can say, don't do it that way. Do not be like them. Of course, he'll go on in verses 9 through 15 and 
lay out a model of prayer, and we'll talk about that later. But this morning, I want to to look at three important questions, three important questions that we must ask and answer in order to avoid a pagan approach to prayer. The first question comes in verse 7. It's simply this. What is the pagan practice of prayer? If we're to avoid it, we need to know what it is. So what is a pagan practice of prayer? What's it like? Verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Stop there. When you are praying, Jesus again assumes prayer on on the part of his disciples. So when you are praying, there's something you must not do. Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, like the Gentiles do. The Gentiles, those are the people who do not know God as a heavenly Father. People outside of the covenant. Pagans. Pagans. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the pagans do. Is what he is saying. Do not use meaningless repetition as the pagans do. What is meaningless repetition? That's the way it's translated in the New American Standard. There are other translations, no doubt, sitting out here in the crowd of this very, very rare Greek verb. In fact, it only occurs here in the New Testament. It is an exceedingly rare verb. The verb is a derivative, I think, of another Greek verb that means to stammer. means to stammer. Stammering, as in the, the repetitive and involuntary sounds made by a person who has what we call a speech impediment. As they try to speak, there are sounds that just sort of come out in advance of the word. They have trouble articulating the word. The stammer. It's likely, the, the verb here is is a word which is, which is called an, in English an onomatopoetic word. It's a word whose pronunciation sounds like how it's spelled, like the word buzz. So the Greek verb here is batalageo. So batalageo. It has that sort of sound like what it means to stammer. Perhaps your English translation has babble. If so, that would be a pretty good English equivalent. When you are praying, do not babble as the pagans do. Do not babble. Pagan prayer is is characterized by meaninglessness. Babble. Meaningless repetition. 
Secondly, pagan prayer is characterized by the magical. The magical. What do I mean by that? The words that make up pagan prayer are in and of themselves not intelligible. They're not rational. They're meaningless. But it goes beyond that. They were, they were considered to be magical in, in terms of their effect. Pagan prayer was, was like a, a magical incantation. You're familiar with the word abracadabra, right? That's a meaningless word. A meaningless word. And yet it appears in all kinds of movies and literature as a sort of the special word, right, that unlocks whatever is going on. It's the same basic idea here. They are nonsensical words, unintelligible words, words that are non-rational, but, but words that are considered to have sort of a magical power associated with them. All designed to move the hand of deity. Designed to move the hand of deity. Get the right combination. Speak the right word. There's power in the word. Or words. But again, they're not words that people speak in everyday language. They're meaningless, babbling sounds. Sometimes I think that people can treat the the little expression in Jesus' name in that fashion. I'll offer a, a prayer to God, right? And I need to make sure that I include the special closing formula in Jesus' name because that's sure to make it fly directly to heaven and strike the heart of God, right? It gives it power. It gives it efficacy. There's a little bit of magic attached to it. Now, you would sit here and you say, well, of course I don't believe that. But sometimes we act like we believe that. Why do we pray in Jesus' name if it's not a special formula, if it's not something designed to sort of move the hand of God. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? What does that mean? It's simply this. We approach a holy God only through the finished atoning work of Jesus Christ. And His name equates with His person. And so what he has done on our behalf is the basis under which we can come before God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man who? Christ Jesus. So we come before the Father in the name or based on the merit of the Son and the power of the Spirit of God. That is the triune formula, if you like formulas, of prayer. It's a proper understanding of the relationships within the triune Godhead. We come to the Father 
on the merit of, based on the merit of the Son and in the power of His Spirit. So to say in Jesus' name is not anything that grants extra potency to our prayer and to forget to say it or to choose not to say it in a particular expression of prayer doesn't nullify or invalidate the prayer. It's not a magical term. This idea of unintelligible, non-rational, stammering kind of prayer that has a, has a magical component attached to it is picked up by some in the church through a misunderstanding of the Apostle Paul's flow of his argument in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, right? So he begins chapter 13, 13, right in the middle, and he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and he goes on to speak, right? People misunderstand what he's saying there. And they pick up on that expression, the tongues of angels, and they, they conceive that there must be an angelic prayer language that's superior to their native tongue. It's superior to English, the angelic prayer language. And and this angelic prayer language communicates, so it's supposed, more clearly, more directly, with less interference, thus more effectuously, or efficaciously rather, with God the Father. And so unwittingly they assume kind of a pagan approach to prayer. We communicate with the Father through speech or through the formulation of speech within the mind if it's not expressed, but it's always intelligible and it's always rational. God would not have us disconnect our brains in order to commune with Him. That notion is pagan, not Christian. So pagan prayer... How is it practiced? It's, it's practiced with a meaninglessness to it. It's practiced with a, with a magical idea associated with it. And it finally is practiced repetitively. Repetitively. Again, back to verse 7. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles, as the pagans do. And here it is. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. They will be heard for, because of, their many words. Lengthy prayers were thought as a way to make sure that the deity appreciated your prayer. You needed to go on and on and on. The longer you prayed, the more that the deity would appreciate the prayer you were offering. The pagans thought and think that God hears and answers prayer in proportion to its wordiness. There's sort of a wordiness quotient. The more wordy it is, the more the deity appreciates it. The more the deity appreciates it, the more likely they are to answer it. Now we see this very, very, very clearly laid out for us in, back in 1 Kings chapter 18. So I'm going to turn you back there.
1 Kings 18. This is the contest that occurs between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Now, the the northern kingdom, having divided after the the death of Solomon into the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes, the northern kingdom was rapidly descending into idolatry until by this point in their history, Baal worship was very much a part of what was going on. There were only really a, a small number of people left in the north who continued with their allegiance to Jehovah, the God of Israel. The, the pagan priests of Baal were actually being supported by the state. They were paying their salary and building their temples and all that sort of thing. And so God is extending himself to the nation, the remnant within the nation, to call them back. And he's doing it in the person of this great prophet, Elijah. Elijah is an incredible character that that moves through the pages of the biblical narrative. And, of course, he's snatched up to be with the Lord without ever proceeding through death. And so his life is really quite amazing. But here, Elijah arraigns a a contest. It's it's been three years since it's rained because Elijah prayed that it would not rain and and drought has come upon the land. And so there's going to be a a confrontation now between between Elijah as the prophet of Jehovah and Elijah. 450 prophets of the false god Baal. And the outcome of this contest is is going to demonstrate for the people who really is God. So verse 25, Elijah has spoken to Ahab the king, and he's told him to set it up. You know, it's going to be on Mount Carmel. Get, get oxen, get wood, we're going to set up an altar here, you're going to slaughter the ox, you're going to put it on, the, on top of the wood, and we're going to pray, and we're going to see which God answers by fire. That should be easy because Baal is the God of storm and fire. This ought to be right up his alley. Verse 25, so Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, now there's 450 of them, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many. So you get to choose first. You know, you, don't, you can choose the skinny one or the fat one. It doesn't matter. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox, which was given to them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. They have to understand, they didn't just say that once. From morning until noon, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. But they leaped about the altar which they had made, and it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them. By the way, mocking has its place. It's appropriately used. I'm serious. There is a place for mocking. Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he, is a, for he is a God, you know, basically you're saying he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. Call out to your God because he's not hearing you. 
So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves, according to their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When the midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and also filled the trench with water. So you get the idea, right? He douses this thing with water. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their back and that they have turned, uh, try it again, that you have turned their back again. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Consumed the whole thing. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. The prophet of Baal, the prophets of Baal, thought they would be heard because of their many words. So all day long they danced around the altar, calling out to their God. Elijah taunts them, right? He suggests that, that maybe Baal is busy doing other things. Maybe he's occupied with other cares, other interests. Maybe he's even sleeping. This, by the way, is how pagans thought about their gods. This is how they thought about their gods. Maybe they are occupied. Maybe they are busy with other cares. Maybe they are sleeping. And so we need to continue to pray and pray and pray until we break through. Until they come back from the long journey they've been on. Listen, people pray like this. We read this and we think, this is so bizarre. This is like 3,000 years ago. They don't do it like that today. Oh, yes, they do. People memorize prayers. And then they repeat them over and over and over again. They have little beads on a string that they pass through their fingers so that they can keep track of the number of times they have mindlessly repeated the same words. This is exactly how pagans prayed 3,000 years ago and how they pray today. 
Listen, Jesus is not criticizing here back in Matthew 6. He's not criticizing the frequency of prayer. The number of times that one might ask God. I mean, Jesus himself in the garden asked God on three occasions, right? Let this cup pass from me. The Apostle Paul prays three times that the thorn in the flesh might be removed from him. So it's not like that Jesus is saying here, you know, you pray a prayer once and that's it. You stop. You never, you never vocalize it again. He's not saying that. He's not even really speaking about the length of one's prayer necessarily. I mean, Jesus himself prayed all night. We're told in Matthew chapter 14, verses 23 and following. It is the attitude of faith which underlies and inspires the prayer. That's the issue. The attitude of faith. Is your faith in the prayer and its ability to move the hand of deity, or is your faith in God? That's what separates pagan prayer from believing Christian prayer. Who is the object of your faith? Or what? Is the power in your prayer? The power lay in God. Jesus is saying that his disciples should avoid meaningless and repetitive prayers offered under the misconception that length or mystical language will ensure their favorable reception. Don't fall into that trap. Speak directly, speak plainly to God. How sad it is that for some, Jesus' prayer here beginning in verse 9, right? Pray then in this way, our Father, and of course the way I learned it when I was a child, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? How sad it is that that model prayer has become meaningless repetition for so many. As if merely vocalizing that carries some kind of power. See, the temptation to pagan prayer practices is not just like something way out there somewhere. It lies always close at hand. Because our understanding of God can get blurred, convoluted, confused. What we believe about God influences how we pray. Now, as a bit of an aside here, there is a danger in in bypassing the mind. There's a danger in bypassing the mind in corporate worship. I couldn't figure out where else to put this in, so it seems like it fits here. Bypassing the mind in corporate worship. There's actually some factions in the church which kind of encourage that. But it's dangerous. Listen, when we sing, when we sing and allow our minds to wander while we sing, allow ourselves to go on autopilot, 
Even though we're, we're mouthing glorious and orthodox truth about God, yet we fail to consider the importance, the meaning, the significance of the very words that are coming out of our mouths, we end up treating God like a pagan deity. As if, as if somehow he is impressed by the, by the quantity and the quality of the words that come out of our mouths. We have to stay engaged. Worship is hard work. Worship is very, very hard work. And you've got to come ready for it. We have a saving relationship with the living God through the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. That should motivate us and animate us to do the work necessary to engage in corporate worship. So we need to prepare ahead of time for it. We need to prepare physically. Physically. Sunday morning begins, can't hear you, yeah, Saturday night. Sunday morning begins Saturday night. That means that what you do Saturday night affects Sunday morning. If you do not get enough rest, you will be tempted to zone out. Even if you get enough hours in bed, the the activities before you go to bed may keep your mind so active that you fail to rest properly. What you eat Sunday morning affects you about 11.30. That's right around now. I can look out and I can watch it happen. I can probably tell you what you had for breakfast or didn't by looking at your faces. Protein lasts, sugar doesn't. Nor does caffeine, for that matter. So take your caffeine early and then move on to protein. Get enough rest, eat properly before you come because you know what? Ultimately, it's kind of a spiritual thing. There's definitely a spiritual side to corporate worship. We need to be prepared to, to listen and respond to the Word of God. That means we need to come in with our, with our hearts and our minds ready to hear from God and, and ready to, be, to change as God confronts us through His Word. Years and years ago, Pastor Jerry, who occupied this pulpit before me. He used to have a sign. He would occasionally put it in front of the pulpit. It was a sign, and it was like one of those street signs. It said, no parking. This is a worship zone. And he was trying to communicate that basic idea. But when we come in here, we're engaged in something significant, and we need to be engaged. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of the Lord. 
For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Make them good, though. A few well-chosen. What is the pagan practice of prayer? It is meaningless, it is magical, and it is repetitive. Second question. What is the pagan perspective on prayer? We know what they do. Why do they do it? What is the perspective on prayer? Why do pagans approach their deities in a fashion of meaningless, repetitive, magical words? The answer to the question is very simple. Coercion. Coercion. They are seeking to coerce or manipulate the deity to do what they want it to do. They operate under an illusion. Look at verse 7. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. They suppose. It's not true, but it's the illusion under which they operate. They operate under the illusion that the deity will answer their prayer, will heed their request, not because the deity wants to, but because by the worshiper's persistence, the deity can no longer ignore them. It's like the child tugging on your pant leg. If I just stand there and yank long enough, mom will give me what I want. She'll listen. Pagans think they have to badger a reluctant God into doing what they want Him to do. Coerce Him. So there's a number of practices that you do in order to try to twist the arm of God. Pagan prayers are are often piled up with flattering titles for the deity in hopes of manipulating them in that way. So they tend to be, f- to be filled with flattering titles. Let's flatter the deity. A lot. They also sought on occasion to, to manipulate the God by reminding them of the favors that the God owed them because of the prior service the worshiper had given to the God. So as I, as I pray to this God, I remind him of all the things I've done on his behalf, or its behalf, whatever, and thus, you owe me. If that doesn't work, you threaten them. If you don't grant this request, then I will deny your existence or your power. By the way, these are great strategies for manipulating people. Flattery. Put them in debt to you. Threaten to withdraw from them emotionally. You can manipulate them. You can get them to do what you want them to do. You can control them. People use it with other people all the time. And and the reason pagans use it with their gods is because a pagan god is nothing but a man blown big. Subject to all the foibles and, and fallacies. Now, as Christians, we can, we can subtly engage in a very similar approach to the living God. 
We can fall into the trap of, of thinking that God needs to be coerced, that He can be bargained with. So Christian people can fall into this trap and they can, they can pray prayers like this, God, if you will grant that I can attend this Christian college, then I'll be a missionary the rest of my life. God, if, if you'll let me pass this exam, I promise I'll study next time. Well, God, if you'll let me go to the party, I promise I'll be obedient to my parents after that. Right? God, if I can get this job, I promise I'll give regularly and generously to your church. People barking with God all the time. Well, they try to. Sometimes we even stoop to, to reminding God of our great sacrifice and, and the service on His behalf, as if somehow that makes Him our debtor, right? Our prayers will remind God of what we've suffered for Him, what we've accomplished for Him, what we've given up for Him. As if somehow that placed him in our debt. Apostle Paul is very, very clear. In Romans, the end of chapter 11, he's gone 11 chapters of, of laying out his glorious gospel. In the end of that, he has a, he has a benediction. Romans 11. says, beginning in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became His counselor? And then look at the verse 35. Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? Who has given to God that God might now have to pay Him back? Answer? nobody. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. God is no man's debtor. Therefore we cannot, therefore we must not even entertain the possible thought process that somehow God owes us anything. You want to know what God owes you? It's a one-way ticket to hell. That's what He owes you. Don't ever ask God for justice. You want mercy. The only thing God owes any of us is hell. But it's in His mercy and His grace through the gift of His own Son, to die in our place, that by faith in Him, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension to the right hand of the Father, where He is now Lord of all, someday to return, establish His kingdom. It's by faith in that incredible reality that we don't get the judgment we deserve. 
Instead, just the opposite happens. We're no longer considered God's enemy, but he, he considers us his children. Isn't that incredible? We don't have to try to manipulate God as if we could. God is inclined towards us like a father to his children. Because what has been done in Christ? Pagans practice all kinds of bizarre vocalizations in an attempt to to move the hand of deity. Third question, what is the proper perspective on prayer? What does Jesus say? Do not be like them, verse 8. Why? Because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. That is an amazing statement. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Unlike the pagans, Jesus says, listen, as, as followers of God, you have a relationship with the God of the universe And it's a father-son relationship. He is is your father. Therefore, it's, it's unnecessary to take all of these foolish attempts to try to get God to do something for you. He is predisposed towards you. He is inclined towards you. He loves you in Jesus Christ, and he wants the best for you. The best for you. He knows what you need, Jesus says. He knows what you need before you even express it. Before you even ask. What Jesus is saying here is not just that he knows it cognitively. That he knows it and he will grant it. He is inclined towards you. He is committed to you. He will meet all of your needs. But not all of your greeds. But not all of your greeds. Look at verse 32, same chapter, Matthew 6. For the pagans eagerly seek all these things, but for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. It's talking about food and clothing and things like that. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, Jesus says. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? God is inclined towards you because of Christ. See, he loves his son perfectly, completely, totally. And because you are by faith united to his beloved son, he loves you the same way he loves Jesus. It never grows deeper 
It never diminishes. We have our good days and our bad days. God doesn't. God's love for you does not vary. Oh, if we can only get a hold of that. If we can only get a hold of that. God wants to answer your prayer before you even vocalize it. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. John, the apostle says, 1 John 5, 14, This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And again, what's implied there is that He hears us and He responds to what He hears. You don't need to worry. God's not on vacation. God's not preoccupied. God's not having a bad day. There's not too many problems in the world right now. Kind of busy. Can you hold on? No answering service. Straight to the heart of God. This question comes up on the parts of some people. We ought to ask it and at least provide somewhat of an answer. If God doesn't need to be informed and He can't be coerced, then why pray? If I don't need to inform God of of what I need, right, and I can't coerce Him into, into answering, then why pray at all? Why not just sit back and become a fatalist. Because it's wrong. Well, there's more than that, but it is wrong. (laughs) It's wrong. Listen, prayer is a tangible expression of relationship. It is an expression of a personal trust in an intimate God. This is what's so incredible. Look at the beginning of verse 9. Our Father who is in heaven. We're going to come back and look at that in some detail next week. Our Father, intimacy, in heaven, transcendence. The great and glorious creator God of the universe. The one true God, the living God. And we have a personal relationship an intimate, personal relationship. And prayer is an expression of that relationship. It pleases God when you pray. It shapes you when you pray. It brings your will in alignment with Him. We don't pray to to try to bend the divine will. We pray as an act of surrendering to it. That's biblical prayer. Jesus said in the garden in Matthew 26 and verse 39, Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
It's an expression of intimacy. Like a father to a child. As I said, next time we're going to look at verses 9 and following. Jesus gives us a model prayer there. We're going to take the time to look at it in some detail. So that it might shape the way we pray. You'll bow your heads. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how amazing it is to be able to voice those words and to do so with confidence, knowing that we approach you in the perfect righteousness that is ours through Jesus Christ, knowing that you are predisposed to hear our prayers, inclined towards us, that we are in a loving relationship with you. Our Father, we confess that we forget at times and we do allow our, our prayers to take on a certain pagan slant to them. We lose sight, our Father, of the gospel. We fail to remember that the veil of the temple has been torn from top to bottom and thrown wide open. And that we have a bold access into your presence. We fail to remember the gospel, our Father, in that many times our prayers are not for our needs but for our greeds. That we pray all too often for our own physical comfort and care too little for your glory in this world. Our Father, may your Spirit use his word this morning to touch our hearts, to convict us where we need to be convicted of our sin, to enable us to flee it, to turn from it, to acknowledge it for what it is, and to come back to the cross. Where there your arms are thrown wide open to receive us. O Lord, may you help us to be a praying people as an expression of the intimate relationship, the glorious relationship that we have with you through Jesus our Lord. Amen.